All right. Good morning. Good morning. All 12 of you that are here, wonderful to see your faces. Great. Great. Uh, well, all, they always trickle in as we get started. If you'll take God's word, James chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 5 through 8. So we're going to really park the car in a, in a tight space today and do some work. A um, few things. Hopefully you've got an outline in the back. It's intended to be somewhat helpful. We do have a PowerPoint this morning solely because we're going to be moving from place to place and we'll just kind of travel Old Testament, New Testament, looking at the wisdom of God and our need for it, which is vast. So, all right. Make your way to your places, Bibles open, outlines. All right. Well, we're going to see in a moment, he, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, right? So let's, let's ask the Lord this morning for his favor and for him to bring great glory to himself through our time. Uh, his word is profitable, so we get the joy and privilege to sit under it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the beautiful, absolute beautiful weather It's a testament to your power, your care for this earth that you made, but us as human beings, God, we're grateful. Your divine nature, eternal power is on display so that all are without excuse. And so, Lord, we thank you for this testimony. We also thank you for the testimony of your word, which is sure, which is right. It enlightens the eyes. It makes the wise simple. By them, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Help us to now heed the instruction of this book. Grow us in understanding, infuse in us conviction, and Lord, help us to be individuals who live our lives skillfully before your presence to the end that we would honor you in all things. And that includes, yes, even how we suffer and even as we pass through trial. Lord, we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, James 1, 5 through 8. You have an outline. Thank you, Roland. Appreciate that. Uh, F.B. Meyer has a commentary on James, and he's talk, he begins to talk about the value and the benefit of trials. And F.B. Meyer goes on to say, if you were to take a bar of iron in my day, you could sell that bar of iron for $2.50. But if you pound that bar of iron down and made it into horseshoes, you could sell that same bar of iron for $5. Still more, if you made that bar of iron into needles, you could fetch $175. And if you crafted pen knife blades, you could extract and receive $1,600 for that same bar of iron. But he says, if you took that bar of iron and you worked it and worked it and worked it, and made it into springs for fine watches, you could receive $125,000 for that same bar of iron. See, the more that bar of iron is manipulated and hammered and passed through the fire and the heat and pounded and polished, the greater its value. Many ways, it's exactly what God does with each of us in the furnace of affliction, does he not? That's James' point in this first section. He launches from a greeting into practical, real-life things, right? Right out the gate. Now the book is all laced and dripping with practical wisdom, proverbial wisdom, a bit of commentary even on our Lord's Sermon on the Mountain. 
mount. This is how you live. The first thing he runs to is trials. He offers a framework, a mindset into how we are to approach the difficulties of life. And all of us have difficulties. By way of reminder, just the people, the context, right? James is writing to to Jewish Christians. This is shortly after the resurrection of Christ. This is, this is early church, young church, fledgling church. They're dispersed abroad. They're de- disenfranchised. They're isolated because of their newfound faith in Messiah. Dispersed abroad. And James proceeds to say, when you encounter and various trials. And they had their share of trials. Now, you and I may not be Jewish and we may not be dispersed abroad, but it's contents of the entire book applies to us all, does it not? Jew, Gentile alike, all of us universally have trials in our lives, such that James says, when you, not if, when you encounter various trials. You'll recall the main idea over this whole pericope, this whole paragraph, verse 2 through 12, right? Trials are God's tools to refine us and to produce something, produce in us Christian maturity, to make us who he wants us to be. Now we can know that, and we do, but we don't always respond well to trials, do we? We don't, and so to that end, James, led by God's Spirit, gives us various admonitions or insights into how we are to respond to trial. To remind you from last Sunday, insight number one is we develop the right attitude toward trial. We saw that in verse two. If you want to respond in a godly way, if you want to benefit from life's trials, you need to develop the right attitude towards those trials. And what is that attitude? Well, James said, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. Doesn't mean you enjoy trials. It doesn't mean you go on a sadistic warpath in pursuit of trials. It simply means trials are to be looked upon as a source of joy, right? We have sorrow. We have grief. The Christian life is not one that's absent of these things. And to think otherwise is to be bewildered and discouraged. We are to look upon our trials as a source of joy to which we ask, well, how can this be? How can we think like that? Let's be honest for a moment. That's contrary to human nature. None of us naturally just rejoices. We're not built with this internal inclination. We don't just naturally rejoice in the difficulties we face. And so how can we develop this mindset? Well, verse 3 was helpful. We grow cognizant of the results that God is accomplishing through the trials. We recognize the good results of trials. As James proceeds to say, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, knowing that, for me... Last week, that was a big underlined phrase for me, knowing that. It struck me, and this is true, I think, for all of us. Not I think, I know for all of us. When we respond wrongly to trials, it's because we fail to know a few things, or at least keep them in mind. 
We talked about it last Sunday. One, it's that God is behind every trial, right? Trials are planned. They're orchestrated. They're ordained. We seem to fall into them, but to God, that is never the case. They're positioned in our lives for a reason. One, so that God intends to use that trial for our spiritual good, to test our faith, to refine, to prove genuine. He's working a good in that press of affliction. And third, we keep in mind, we know that every trial properly responded to will strengthen our faith. It produces endurance, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I'll just ask you this morning more for kind of a introspection, right? We don't have to offer it out loud, but what do you do when you struggle in the midst of trials to maintain this mindset? You, you don't always have the right attitude. You struggle to keep in mind the good results of trials, that, that God is behind them and that he's using them for your spiritual good and he will strengthen you through them. What do you do if you have trouble or fail to know these things? What do you do when you lack wisdom as to the explanation of trials? And so doubt creeps in and depression creeps in and discouragement and bitterness and all sorts of ill responses. What do you do? Well, thankfully, the text continues, right? He goes on to verse 5. There's three more insights into this how to respond to trials. We're just going to cover one more this morning. Verse 5 But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Friends, that is not a description I'm too keen of being ascribed to myself. Unstable in all his ways. We'll unpack that here momentarily. What do we do when we lack the wisdom needed to walk through trials skillfully? Well, this is neither profound or complicated. We simply ask, right? which is our third insight. We ask God for wisdom to deal with trials. James says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, now the way that that's put there, he's not saying, hey, there's some among you that, that really don't have any lack of wisdom, so you don't really need to ask. That's not the way it's constructed. It's all of you need wisdom. In the face of trials and difficulties, we have a universal need for wisdom. In the midst of trials, we don't always live in a way that pleases God. We we don't always live skillfully, which is what wisdom is. It's knowledge applied in the right way. You put the pieces together so that your, your life is framed by that which you know, and it's altered, it's affected, your internal disposition, your attitude, your responses towards the Lord, towards the circumstances, towards other people. You live life skillfully, right? Warren Wisby said, knowledge is the ability to take things apart. Wisdom is the ability to put things together. I have all of these theological things of which I know to be true, and I'm able to piece these together. God grants wisdom so I can see it all come together so that it impacts my life and I live to his praise. 
James says, you know the, these things. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So pass through those trials applying what you know. Put together the pieces in a skillful, life-altering way. We don't always live skillfully <laughs> in this way. We don't always live skillfully. And, and herein lies really the beautiful irony to the Lord's wisdom here. This struck me this week because if you go back to verse 4, in fact, I was talking to Natalie. She pointed this out. Verse 4, he's just finished saying, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he goes on to say, But if any of you lacks wisdom, <laughs> let him ask, right? So here, here was the irony for me, right? In the midst of life, and life is full of trials, we often lack the wisdom that we need. And so, yes, on one end, we're, we're called to ask for that which we lack. And yet on the other end, there's this wonderful paradox of kind of that Philippians 2.12, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. God actually intends to use the travails of life to produce in us what we don't naturally have. God, I, I don't have the wisdom, so I'm going to approach you and ask. And from God's perspective, he, he's like, yeah, I know the trials are there to produce this in you. And as you approach him in humility, transparency, God is generous to grant. As endurance is allowed to work its way in your life, he actually adds virtue upon virtue, development upon development in your life, so that we eventually lack nothing, complete, right? Mature. The goal of trials, God's purpose, is maturity, to make you into his image, his likeness. Now, we need this wisdom. We're called to ask. I think it's helpful to think and ponder what, in what sense do we lack wisdom in the midst of trials. And from a practical perspective, just thinking about this, that this week is, one, I, personally, I need wisdom to be able to see our trials as a source of joy. I need the ability to see them. We, we've just been commanded to consider it all joy, right? But that's not easy. <laughs> when my world is unraveling and your world is unraveling, the last thing I want to do is to see my trials as a source of joy. And so we need to cry out to God for wisdom to to understand his priorities in the midst of our, our troubles. Lord, give me eyes to see. I, I have short-sighted cataracts, and, and I have blinders to boot. I don't always live aware of these things. Lord, give me eyes to see. You are working. You are planning. You are orchestrating. You are using. These things are here for a reason. Take a deep breath. You are up to something. And secondly, I need wisdom not only to see, but to respond. I need to respond to my circumstances wisely. It, you may see trials as a source of joy, but you don't have a clue as to how to respond. Well, what's next? What, what do I do? What is, how does this manifest itself in my life? I, I ran across a, an, an entry in Reader's Digest, about 30 years old. It was in the early 90s, right? Recorded an interest, interesting story of a man who woke up one morning to find a puddle of water on the, in the middle of his king-size wa king water bed, okay? And, and in order to fix the puncture, the man proceeded to roll that mattress outside 
and he filled it with extra water so he could ascertain where the source of the leak was coming from. Well, this tremendous blob of water, as you can imagine, began to take on a life of its own. Man lived in a hilly area, and you can envision what happened next. That mattress began to roll out of control. And he tried to hold it back, but to no avail. Eventually, the giant blob crashed down the hillside into a thorn bush and punctured in many, many different places. Well, the man was so disgusted with himself, he took the mattress, he even took the frame. He proceeded to take it outside and set it on fire. He later replaced his king-sized mattress, a new frame into his bed. He went to sleep that night at peace with himself, and he woke up the next morning to find what? Puddle of water in the middle of his bed again. What was the issue? You see, he had a bathroom upstairs that had a leaky pipe. That story is humorous, but isn't it an accurate description of how we often deal with trials? We do exactly the same things. We see them, we misdiagnose, and we respond in an inappropriate way. Let me ask you this by way of response this morning. We're often foolish when it comes to this space in life. I want to ask, how does foolishness manifest itself in the midst of trial? What are we often guilty of doing when faced with such pressure? Angry. Excellent. Great start. Overreacting. Okay. In the sense of like panic. Is that what? Okay. Full-blown hysteria. Unstable in all his ways sort of response. Excellent. What else? What's that? Blame shifting, right? And blame, blame shifting others, but blame, blaming who else? Yeah. Anything else? Rebecca. Yeah. We look advanced. Not only are the troubles as if they're sufficient enough for today, we actually look forward to trials that we don't even know yet. And we worry and are full of angst for what might be. The what ifs, Rebecca said. That's absolutely. Yes. We are professional tinkerers, right? If I just work on this well enough, I can eradicate this from my life. Excellent. Overly? Yeah, yeah, overly dwell. It becomes our consuming object of attention, right? Which, no shock, when that is the consuming object of your attention, it crowds out other things of which you are to be focused on. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, the sovereignty of God, his promises in scripture, right? We could go on and on. But I am so fixated and locked in. Excellent, David. What else? Surprise? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If we're, if we're students of theology, we understand our Bibles and God revealed it, we, we ought not be surprised. That you see, in this world, you will have trouble. Right? It's all throughout the New Testament. Uh, absolutely. And yet we can be shocked and surprised. That's foolishness. Excellent. You guys already listed several. We ju- jump to incorrect assumptions, conclusions. We make bad decisions. We 
mess with the circumstances that God has brought in. We get angry, bitter, we blame. Excellent. We need God's wisdom is the takeaway to respond wisely, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In Bible drill, we would remember this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Verse 7 is one, as a kid, I didn't memorize. It's a great follow-up. Do not be what? In your own eyes. Do not be wise in your own eyes, right? Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That is heavy because that's, that's, that's our natural MO. Wise in my own eyes, which goes back to what you said with pride, right? That same proverb goes on to say in verse 17, Proverbs 3:17. it talks about wisdom, godly wisdom. It says, her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. Isn't that what you long for in the midst of trial? Lord, well-being in my inner being, peace within. That's what I long for as I pass through this trial, trusting you. Right? Wisdom, her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. Now, we need wisdom. How do we gain this tremendous resource of wisdom? Look at verse 5. How do we gain it? You tell me. What's that? Ask God. Prayer, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, we all do. Let him ask of God. Friends, we need but ask. In fact, we are commanded to ask. Prayer is what gives us access to God and his wisdom. Beseeching his face is a byproduct of knowing where wisdom comes from. You, you remember Job full well, right? He had, at some point, he turns to his ridiculous friends, his would-be counselors, and he addresses them, and he says the following in Job 28, 12. He says, but where can wisdom be found? And where is this place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's, it's not in me. And the sea says, it, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir or in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? That is the question. Where is this place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard report of it. And then look at verse 23. God understands its way and he knows its place. Where can it be found? Friends, we gladly approach God because we know he is the author of wisdom itself. God knows its way. The rest of scripture makes this point. Another passage that portrays this kind of uh, reaction that we ought to have. You want to know how to cry out to God? You, you can just look at Judas King Jehoshaphat. Remember, you'll remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the scene is this. He finds himself under siege. 
And he does not have adequate resources, which is an understatement. He does not have adequate resources to meet the opposition. And so what does King Jehoshaphat does? He declares a fast and he seeks the Lord. Look at verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with the son of Munite, of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of house of the Lord before the new court. And then he proceeds to recall God's character. O O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. He goes on to say this in verse 12. O our God, will you not judge them? And listen to this. For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, and here it is, nor do we know what to do. You ever feel powerless? You ever feel like you have inadequate resources? You ever not know what to do in a particular situation? What should we do? Look what he says in verse 12. For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You want to know what we ought to do, we... We should emulate that right there. God, I, I, I really don't know what to do next. I, I, I know I can't really fix or resolve this diagnosis. I can't truly mend this relational tension that resides around my life. God, I can't, this dysfunction at work or in my family, I, I alone cannot do these things. But what I can do is put my eyes on you, right? I can approach you. This is how you cry out to God. God loves this kind of humility, this transparency. And, and it's just helpful for us because we sometimes like to possess a, a sort of tough guy, self-reliant disposition or persona, don't we? Especially as men, right? Self-reliant, tough guy disposition. I think this is helpful because it prompts you to ask, when I encounter trials and the trials of life, and there are many, is my first response to go to the throne of God and seek help? Is my first response to approach the throne of God and seek help? Our pastor opened up Hebrews 4, verse 16, not not long ago. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we, we may receive help or mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That need can be trials, difficulties, pressures, stress. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Ask God. We don't always have the right attitude. We don't always see what God is doing. And prayer isn't always our knee-jerk reaction, is it? Let me ask you. If prayer is not my natural reaction oftentimes, what is your natural reaction to trial. What are some typical responses to trials other than prayer? And I'll open the floor. Too much introspection. Boy, that is, that's mine right there. To a, almost like to a paralysis state, right? A, de, a debilitating state. A self-defeating state. What else? Worry. Okay, yeah, wringing of hands, worry, angst. 
trying to fix it. Yeah. Excellent. I saw another hand somewhere. Okay. Yeah, we approach the counsel of other sinners, right? Instead of God, first and foremost. Excellent. Yes. We try to control the situation. Absolutely. We take the reins, which can be incredibly defeating and frustrating, right? <laughs> that is a fool's errand to think that we could control anything. Yes, Mary. Yes, okay. Being hasty. Excellent. Not patient, for sure. Yeah, shifting blame. Okay. Yeah, shifting blame. Absolutely. Anyone ever want to retreat and curl up on the couch? The proverbial tub of ice cream effect, right? No, no, not us, right? Drown our sorrows with fill in the blank, whether it be substance abuse or whether it just be food. We set aside responsibilities. I've known men to just absolutely shut down and procrastinate every meaningful thing in their life. Gripped, paralyzed, unable to do anything. You want to talk about an unstable man in all his ways, just being battered around by the waves of the sea? We set aside responsibilities. We self-indulge. We procrastinate. In the midst of trials, we don't always feel at the peak of our spiritual journey. We don't always run to the Father. We don't always feel like reading God's word, right? Just a moment of honesty, right? And we don't always feel it. And knowing this, here's the beautiful part, for James does know this. He offers an encouragement. God offers an encouragement. Keep reading verse 5. He knows this about us, so he writes, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And then, what's the rest of the verse? Who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If anyone needs encouragement to pray, just look at God's character. Let us realize that God gives, number one, generously to those who ask, right? He gives generally, generously to those who ask. Out of his grace, he gives. That word there, generously, means to be single in motive or wholeheartedly. You know what that conveys to me? I, I love this. God does not give with an ulterior motive. He gives freely. He's not looking for something from you. He wants us to pray more frequently than we do. In fact, trials have a way of driving us to prayer, right? And the fact that trials have a way of driving us to prayer is one of the many good things that God brings in us through trial. So we realize that God gives generously. I'm encouraged to get up off the couch, put down the tub of ice cream, not procrastinate my labor, not introspection to the point of detriment, not worry, not arrogance, not fixing it. And I beseech his face. God, you give generously. I don't know how to proceed, but I'm gonna, I know some certain things and I'm gonna apply them to my life. I wanna, I wanna live in and through this trial in a way that is masterful to your great praise. If that's gonna happen, where does it come from? 
God knows its place, right? It comes from him. Secondly, we, we realize that God gives without reproach. It, it's not enough that he gives generously, which is amazing. He gives without reproach. A reproach is simply an insult, a criticism, a reprimand that's intended to bring shame. James Hebert has a commentary on James. He writes this. He says, I love this. I think it's in your PowerPoint, perhaps. He says, God does not respond to our petition and then heap insult upon us for asking. He does not offensively recall the benefits already given or rebuke the applicant who asked for more. He does not scold because we have inadequately used his former gifts or rebuke us for our repeated lack of wisdom to which God's people said, thank you, thank you, thank you, right? God gives without reproach. He, he doesn't say, wait, I just really wish you would have gotten this together by this point. You're an embarrassment to me. So grateful that God lavishes wisdom to those who are humble and ask without any measure of reproach and shame. God gives without reproach. Romans 8.31, you know it. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, and just pause there for a moment, God is not against us. He hasn't deserted you in the midst of trial. You're not alone. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? If he has given you Christ... Why would he withhold all that you need? He won't. There's the spiritual logic there. I would ask you this morning, is that how you think about your God? How will he not also freely give you all things? You need wisdom? You do. He will lavish it as you ask him. And he will do so without reproach. God is for us. He will give you everything that you need to live skillfully, wisely in the midst of trial. One more text comes to mind. Our students are in the Gospel of Matthew. God gives graciously to his children. Matthew 7, again, Sermon on the Mount. James is really a commentary to the Sermon on the Mount in many ways. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, love this, same language as Romans 8, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you what is good to those who, what? Ask him. That's our God. This is our God. Do you know him in this way? How's your praying in the midst of trials? That's a true question I'm asking for you to ponder, myself to ponder. God promises to give wisdom. This, this doesn't always mean that you'll know why something's happening, does it? Much of what takes place in your life will remain a mystery. The secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You will not figure it all out. There will be much to you that will prove to be an enigma. It's not your job to understand. That's not what it is to be wise. 
To be wise doesn't just mean know, to know the why to everything. In many ways, God doesn't show us why. Because in the midst of not knowing is where he begins to work and complete and produce things in us, in our waiting, in our leaning, in our dependency upon him. This God who is absolutely generous, this God who operates with a single motive directed towards your good and his glory. Do you think of God as one in this way? Notice James gives an important caveat in verse 6. He says, our praying must be done in faith without any doubting. We could unpack this for weeks, but verse 6, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect what he... What, that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me ask you, we're to ask, we're to ask in faith. What are some ways that we don't ask in faith? We ask, but we don't ask in faith. What are some ways that we do that? We approach God. We pray, but it's not in faith. What does that look like tangibly, practically? Yeah, there's still that wise in your own eyes, Proverbs 3, 7 dynamic, okay? Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, we ask, but we... We lack the confidence to know no, he is able, right? Um, absolutely. There's unbelief. And in, in, um, unbelief is a pernicious evil. It is it's so intertwined with us and embedded within. Right? We spend a lifetime having that being sifted out of us, unbelief. Even those of greatest faith have moments. And you can go through the Bible and see such individuals. We're right there among their company. What else? Laura. And then Mary. Yeah, ab- absolutely. We ask for a sp- specific outcome, or maybe we're hesitant to receive his answer. Either way, both and Mary. And then. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. We ask in the flesh. There's maybe some selfishness, some fleshly desires that are interwoven in within. Yeah, uh, we are. The heart is wicked, <laughs> deceitful. Excellent. Anything else? You ever seen someone who approaches a friend and something needs to be ironed out or, or even just someone that they know and they feign humility? And they feign a loving disposition to see this worked out and for peace to reign. But like in a subtle, manipulative way, there's this insertion and jab of critique to cut, to blame, right? But they, they're able to walk away with this kind of cloak of self-righteousness. I mean, we do that with God too, right? We, we can pray but literally argue with God in our prayers, <laughs> right? Um, we even do that before the God who made us, right? 
And the issue here is not possessing enough faith. We, we can have faith of a mustard seed, the Lord said. The issue here is of arguing. To argue with oneself is the word there. To literally have a divided mind. James says the doubter's problem is that he is double-minded. He vacillates between two ways of thinking. He has a divided allegiance. Sometimes he's trusting in the Lord and sometimes he abandons all hope and trusts in himself. This person can't decide whether or not they're going to be committed to the Lord or committed to themselves. They can't decide if they want God's way or their way. They just go back and forth. And God says, if you ask in this way, do not expect that which you ask for. Do not expect what you ask for. What is the result of this double-mindedness? I think one, a doubter's heart is an agitated heart. It's an unsettled heart, right? Look at James' illustration here. He is like the surf of the sea, driving and tossed by the wind. Driven and tossed by the wind. An image, no doubt, from James's childhood, right? He's home in Nazareth, Sea of Galilee. Sea of Nazareth was notorious for fitful storms, right? Wind can come off of a mountain, be perfectly still there on the sea, and a storm could arise in just minutes. James alludes back to that scene and says, a double-minded man is a lot like that. Calm one minute. And a bit schizophrenic and unstable the next, right? Fitful storm, unstable in all his ways. This person is encouraged one minute and discouraged the next. His emotions are blown here and there like a billowing sea. He's unsettled. He's restless. This is the person who lives back and forth between hopelessness and despair and panic and depression. It's all a vicious cycle. He views himself often as a victim of consequences rather than a participant in the program of God. Back and forth, back and forth. This man is unstable, but the man of faith is different. He's stable, he's mature. He may not possess all wisdom for every situation, but when he needs to ask, he does so in confidence that he's gone to the right source. He is like Psalm 1 says, a tree firmly planted. He's not tossed back and forth on the sea. His roots go down deep by streams of water, having all that he needs for the moment at hand. God desires to bring about maturity in us. He drives us to prayer, and oftentimes the only way that he prompts us to do that is with trials. Just think about it for a moment. Picture life with being absent of trials. What kind of people would we be? Perfectly comfortable, lacking nothing, healthy, no tension, harmony, peace on earth. Sounds great. What kind of people would we be? We know this just even in life, right? Reminded of a source of a pressure that we experience every day, and that's air pressure, right? Air is a mixture of gases, surrounds the earth. Air has weight. At sea level, it weighs one and a quarter ounces. So, the weight of the air that presses down on the top of our atmosphere is called air pressure. At sea level, it is 14.7 pounds per square inch. Meaning, as we live each day, the pressure that bears down on our shoulders is 2,000 
pounds. Now we don't feel this because it's all equalized all over our bodies and yet we live under this pressure. Now let me ask you, what happens when that pressure goes away as is the case for astronauts? What happens to their body? What happens to their muscles? Yes, what do you call it? Atrophy, Atrophy. thank you. I was searching for the word, it came through. Excellent, atrophy. Your muscles shrivel up, right? It, we, we're intended to live under that pressure. It strengthens our muscles. It keeps our frame upright. Without it, we would collapse. In, in many ways, just correlate that to life in a broken planet as we await the return of our king. In this life, you will have trouble, therefore you're good. But we don't often like weightlifting. It hurts, it's a strain. It requires energy and labor and sweat. All of that is for our good, right? It builds us up. It brings us from one spiritual place to the next, maturing, growing, developing, changes the way you view trials, right? In this life, you will have trouble. I wake up this morning, God, I don't know what trial you have in front of me, but I know what is true. You're behind every trial. You will use them for my spiritual good. You will strengthen me as I respond to these things in faith. Lord, give me wisdom. You give generously without reproach. Thank you, Lord. And you charge ahead with the day, right? Some of you are currently in the midst of a trial. It's not trial that might, maybe, it's a trial that is. The same is equally true in those cases as well, yes? We have a great God, right? We get to respond to him in worship here in a moment, okay? Uh, I think on your outlines, had a few questions this morning. I think we covered all of them. You mind if I see that? Yeah, thank you, Mandy. Should have grabbed one. What are some typical responses to trials other than prayer? We covered that. When we refuse to approach God for help, what are the root heart issues as to why? So maybe think about that this week. And we talked about how foolishness often manifests itself in the midst of trial. Think through the heart, the root heart issues as to why we don't pray this week. Okay? Moment of God-led introspection there. Right? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and for our time in your word. It's always rich, always sweet. We thank you for the wisdom that you give. We thank you for your character, your faithfulness. That This is true of you as James was written. This is true of you 2,000 years later. It will be true about you forevermore. You are unchanging. And we rest in this. Lord, I, I pray for this church, this local church is lined with all sorts of trials and suffering, some of which are known publicly, others that are not known, not divulged. Lord, you know these things. You're able to use and reveal yourself and produce those things in those situations of which, Lord, is beyond our imagination, beyond what we could possibly think. You are able. You are able. Help us to be full of confidence of that this morning. And we pray that the remainder of our time, both the fellowship now between the services, but even our response to you in the next hour would be informed and energized by us knowing this. You are a God who is able. You give generously without reproach. You are deserving of praise. Would you elevate this in our mind's eyes and may you be honored with the rest of this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.